Well, church, uh, in a moment, we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and um, some of you might be in the room thinking, didn't we do that already earlier this year? And the answer is, yes, we did. Um, and I'm going to explain uh, a little bit more in, in a bit. But first, uh, I want to reflect on a group of people that I am very intrigued by, and uh, the type of people that I'm talking about are people that describe uh, wine, chocolate, beer, and whiskey. Um, and the way that they, they, if you've ever heard people describe these things specifically, they often will use the, this elaborate type vocabulary to describe what they're tasting. And, and so they'll, they'll take a bite of a piece of chocolate or they'll have a sip of wine and be, begin to describe how, oh, the flavor of this is so nutty and rich and delicate. There's, there's notes of, of wood and honey and all these other things that they begin to describe uh, the flavor of whatever it is that they are, are enjoying. Have you... Is anyone in the room able to, to maybe take a bite of chocolate and be able to describe all of the different notes and things that you're in? It's not to make fun of you in any way, but just celebrate you. Like I said, like maybe your palate is just absolutely uh, just incredible. For me, I'll take a bite of dark chocolate and just go either, this is good, or no, this is bad. And that's it. That's all I've got for you, right? But I reflect on that, and I, I think that because, listen, when I, when I engage with Ephesians chapter 1, specifically the first three chapters, or not just Ephesians chapter 1, but the first part of the book of Ephesians, what I, what I come across here is the Apostle Paul describing all of these notes and the aroma of God in a way that I see such passion uh, in his heart, he comes to us. And I think that what he's describing here is just like, there's so much richness in God. There is so much depth. There's so much beauty. And it's just like he, want, he begins to highlight for us, for specifically when we get into uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, all of these different notes that he's encountering as he engages his, in his relationship with God. And he wants to highlight it for us so that it would be something that would completely overtake our lives, that Paul's con, just his, his contagious joy would become our joy. Um, so like I mentioned, we, uh, in the spring, heading into Easter time, we did, uh, I think it was a three or four part sermon series on just this, what is a one run, uh, one long run on sentence. It's something like over 200 words in the original Greek, ver uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And I figured as we've been praying, considering uh, where we would go in this fall, it's kind of saying, you know, we, we, we got to our toes into the water of the book of Ephesians. Let's just jump in. And so um, heading into Advent, which will happen um, late November through December, we just figured, man, let's spend some time throughout the whole book uh, of Ephesians. So that's where we're going to be over the next uh, couple of months. And we've uh, titled the sermon series, Therefore. And the reason that, that there's this title, Therefore, is you will see this critical statement in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, that simply says, therefore, therefore, this is how you should live, this is how you should stand, this is how you should walk. So what Paul does and the way that he structures the book of Ephesians is Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 describes these, in, just has these incredible descriptions of who God is, what he has done. It is, it is the theological Mariana Trench. It is, it's deep and it's profound, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. But he just doesn't leave us there, though he could. Paul then says, therefore, this is how you live. And he gets very practical. 
This is, this is the application of it. This is, this is how our lives are forever changed because as we reflect on the richness and depth of who God is. And so throughout this sermon series, hopefully that what we're doing here is to say, hey, there's these deep theological truths about who God is. Therefore, this is how it impacts our lives. Therefore, this is how we're going to live as, as followers of God and, and as the community of God. This is how we hope to see it play out in our lives. So church, if you would, um, this morning will kind of be like a recap of, of where we were in the spring, and then that'll carry us forward um, in the weeks ahead. But if you would, stand with me as we read again Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. In the New Living Translation, it says this, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered us. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plans. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news, that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. Let's pray. Father, may we, may we sit in and be saturated in the richness and the depths of, of who you are. May we reflect and be reminded of your great love for us. Lord, may we know how you delight in us. May, no, may we know how you enjoy us. Father, I pray that a marker upon our time in this book of Ephesians is that we would have greater awareness of your love, of your power, of your strength made available to us. May our relationship with you, Spirit of God, be more rich and full and alive as we navigate this, this book together. May we know you're abiding with us. May we know you, Spirit of God, filling us every space of our lives. And so we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Paul starts off the book of Ephesians with just this eruption of praise for all that God has done. Here God is. Do you, do you see him? Do you see the richness and the depths of all that he has done for us, all that he is and all that he has accomplished? And in the spring, we even reflected upon that. What you see here at play in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is that there's three movements to uh, this run-on sentence. And what Paul is doing in the first movement 
He's starting off and just saying, hey, praise God, and then he begins to describe all of the things that the Father has done. The Father has chosen us. The Father has adopted us. The Father has lavished grace upon us. And after that first movement, Paul says, praise God. And then he goes into a next movement where he describes what, has, what the Son has done. The Son has redeemed us. The Son has forgiven us. We have been given insight, we have been given knowledge of the plans of God in the Son. And so we are to praise God for what the Son has done. And then in that third movement, Paul describes what the Spirit has accomplished. The Spirit has been given to us as an inheritance, a deposit guaranteeing us what lies ahead for us. And, and the Spirit himself gives himself to us. The Spirit has been given to us, and now we live lives alive to the Holy Spirit's filling and, and, and falling upon us. And so Paul starts off his letter, which is this deep praise. Do you see what God has done? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all at work in our lives, all working on our behalf, drawing us to himself. And Paul's, Paul's enthusiasm in this letter is, is meant to be contagious. It's meant to be this place, there's this, someone that's reflected on it, and it's just like that, that Paul writes this, Ben Weatherington, when he writes, uh, when he reflects on this passage, he says this, this praise passage has part of its rhetorical aim to get the audience caught up in the love, wonder, and praise of what God has done for them. Paul's joy is meant to, is, is meant to catch our hearts and, and just to, to infect our lives. Have you ever been around someone with just a really contagious laugh? Like they just start laughing and then the room, the environment, the atmosphere is completely changed. There was one, there was one um, evening quite a few years ago, Larissa and I went to a movie for a date night and we sat down in our seats, and as we sat down there, all of a sudden we noticed that there were some friends that were sitting in front of us. We didn't know that they were coming to that movie that night, so we got the chance just to have the joy of being in the, in the theater there with them. And one of our friends, his nickname is Brosif, has the most loud and contagious laugh that you have ever interacted with. And the movie... We, we watched that movie and thought it was the best movie that we have ever seen in our lives because of Brosif's laugh. We laughed so much during that movie just because of the ecstatic joy that was happening in the seat in front of us. And then we got back and watched that movie and went, huh, it isn't as good as we remember. <laughs> But there's this other movie called Finding Neverland, and in it, it tells the story of the person that wrote the, the, uh, the play or the book, um, Peter Pan. And they had this strategy that they did that were on opening night of the theater play of Peter Pan that they intentionally brought in all into the theater all of these orphans. They went to a local orphanage and just got all the kids to come into the theater. And so you had all these really rich, elegant people that are sitting in the theater and then all of a sudden they look behind them and all these kids start pouring into the room. And then the play happens and the amount of laughter that was in the room because the kids were just there to enjoy the gift that was given to them. And the play for everyone else in the audience was just made so much more lively. It was made just so much more engaging because of the amount of joy that was in the room. Listen, friends, I think the one point of application that I would start us with as we step into this series is this, is that we need people in our lives that are going to point us to joy. We, we need people in our lives that are going to help us to celebrate the goodness of God, to be caught up in the love and the wonder and the power of who he is. People that almost just naively just go through life and just say, do you see how good God is? 
People that just, that, that just have this eruptive joy about them in their relationship with Jesus. We need people in our lives that will point us to thanksgiving and praise. We need people in our lives that smile a lot. We need people in our lives, particularly in, the, in a world that is filled with so much conflict and complaining, that demonstrate to us thanksgiving and gratitude. We need people in our lives that, that are so quick to offer words of encouragement and grace and kindness and love. We, we need people in our lives that automatically think the best of people and the best of their motives. We need people in our lives that are quick to offer forgiveness. Right? And that's what Paul is doing here at the start of his letters, just by, by being that example for us. He is an example of gratitude. He is an example of thanksgiving. And so there's this, there's, there's this, this rapture-type element to, to the opening of Paul's letter. It's just like everything about that he's writing here is praise God! And it reflects the, the, the Hebrew scriptures of this Baruch Adonai. Like, praise God for what the Father has done. Baruch Adonai for what the Son has done. Like, like praise Yahweh for what the Spirit has done. Do you see it? Do you see it? Bless God. Friends, bless God this week. Get caught up, be raptured in the goodness of who God is this week. I came across this quote from G.K. Chesterton. It says this. It says, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. <laughs> this has always been the instinct of Christendom and especially the instinct of Christian art. In the old Christian pictures, the sky over every figure is like, blue, like a blue or gold parachute. Every figure seems be, to be ready to fly up and float up in the heavens. The tattered cloak of the beggar will bear him up like the rayed plumes of the angels. But the kings in their heavy gold and, their, and proud in their robes of purple will all of their natures sink downwards, for pride cannot rise to levity or leviation, for solemnity flows out of men naturally, but laughter is a leap. It is easy to be heavy, hard to be light. Satan fell by the force of gravity. I don't deserve to be here. I, I, don't, I don't deserve the richness of life that I have. And when we take on this posture of gratitude, of thanksgiving, all of a sudden we're able to live with this lightness in life. We're able to live in this place where when I, when I realize what God has done for me, when I realize the grace that he has extended to me, when I realize the richness that I live in, and that becomes my focus, friends, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is right, whatever is just, whatever is good, think on these things. When I live from that posture in life, then it's with that kind of posture then to the people around me, suddenly I can offer encouragement. I can offer forgiveness. I can, I can bless rather than condemn. I can compliment rather than complain. I, I can celebrate when others are flourishing even though I'm in a difficult season of life. Because when my heart is formed in the way of praise and gratitude, when I realize that, that God doesn't owe me anything, but he is just constantly offering me grace and kindness and love, 
man, suddenly I live in a different posture in this world. Suddenly I interact with people differently. Suddenly I, 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 I can laugh more frequently. It just it suddenly learn to enjoy the people around me. Paul just teaches us here, like, like get caught up. Get caught up in praise. And friends, my encouragement to you this week is this. Make Thanksgiving a habit. Make Thanksgiving a habit this week. Because it is. It's a discipline. It is a practice. Because everything about the gravitational pull of the world around you will be to observe what life owes you and how people should be treating you. You will live with these unspoken expectations for how people should be interacting with you. You're going to be observing cars naturally on the freeway this week and and be, be absolutely convinced that they are out to get you. But what if you made praise a habit? What if you made Thanksgiving a discipline? What if, what if even right now you ignored the rest of the sermon and you opened up your phone and set up some reminders for you to step into Thanksgiving this week? And you didn't, and you didn't just silence the notification. Imagine how our hearts could be shaped if Thanksgiving was a habit. Imagine how dynamic a community could be if that community was was all collectively determined to live with gratitude. Imagine how welcoming that community would be. Imagine how good it would be to be a guest in that community. Let our hearts be shaped by praise. And and Paul intentionally, as he writes this, if you can go to the next slide, you'll see what he does here. He just, he'll say, he starts off, all praise to God. And he goes into a movement. And then after that movement closes, he says, so we praise God. And then he goes into another movement. And after he goes through that movement, he says, so we bring praise and glory to God. And then he goes into another movement. And then he just he concludes the entire thing by saying, he did this. God did all of this. God did all of this so that we would praise and glorify him. Why did God do all this work? Why did he choose you and adopt you? Why did he redeem and forgive you? Why did he lavish grace upon you? Why did he give you his Holy Spirit? Why did he make known to you the mystery of his will? Why why did he he give the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing an inheritance for a future to come? He did all of this. You ever ask, you ever ask, have someone wonder what, what, what the mystery of the universe is and what life is all about? Paul opens this for us. Why is God at work in the world around us? Why did God pursue you relentlessly? Why is he after your heart? Why did he call a a new people to be united here together? Why do you exist? Why are we gathered here sitting in these seats right here, right now for? He did all of this so that we would praise and glorify him. So you would enjoy him. Your hearts would leap at the sound of his name. So that in times when we're gathered here and we're singing together the name of Jesus, that there would be that beautiful mixture of tears flowing down your eyes and a ridiculous smile upon your face. Because there is no name like the name of Jesus. That your hearts would just learn what it is to enjoy him, to praise him, to glorify him. He did all of this for this reason. 
Why did he do all this? Here's the therefore. He did all of this, therefore, live a life of praise. Therefore, live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving. Therefore, learn to enjoy him. Therefore, learn what it is to be, for him to be your rock and your firm foundation. Therefore, no matter what season of life that you are in, in an incredibly just, just difficult season of life, that your heart would still have this, this reaction to us, this, this reflex about it, where you would learn that to, to, you've made a habit of just returning to him and enjoying his presence, finding help and security in him. Learn now to glorify and praise him. And so, or, or when you're out on a hike and you see an incredible just vista that is in front of you, that the immediate reaction of your heart would just to be just to go, praise God. Thank you that I get to enjoy you and the works of your hand here in this moment. He did all of this so that you would praise him that we would live lives of gratitude. What are the, what are the all that he did? Um, I've got eight more points this morning. <laughs> each one of them, each one of them, just hopefully a, a short little reflection that is only about 30 minutes each point. Um, you can get those donuts. Yes, you can get those donuts. Um, no, I, I want to show you some of the notes in this rich chocolate. Um, we won't spend time a long time by any means on each one, but here's the first one that Paul tells us to praise. Praise God because he chose us. He chose us. Even before he made the world, God loved us, and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Listen, friends, love is God's starting point. Even before God made the world, he loved us. God's primary disposition to you isn't critique. It's delight. He enjoys you. And before God made the world, he was strategizing, he was planning he was making a way to be with us. From the get-go, that's what he was after. Listen, listen, God, is, well, let me take a, a quick aside and say this. One of the, the things that I know that has, has tripped up or has challenged the church throughout our existence has, has been reflecting on this word chosen. A lot of times we get caught up in what does that mean? Did God elect some? Did he choose some and not others? Does it mean that I'm chosen or am I not chosen? And, and um, if you go back uh, to our sermon series in the spring, we wrestled through that quite a bit. Um, but this isn't so much a, a description of, of God, saying that God chose some and not others, but it's more of a how statement. If you notice what it says, it says that God chose us in Christ. That's what's being described here. How did God choose the church? And he chose the church through Jesus. So if you choose Jesus, you are now a part of the people that God chose. Again, you can get a little bit more depth uh, in that if we go back into that sermon series in the spring. But, but what I believe Paul is trying to get across to us is, that, is to say that the Father is infatuated with humanity and his constant movement, his constant effort is choosing us. What he is always up to is choosing us. And, and, and you can just think about it this relationally, Let's say that, hypothetically, Larissa and I are in an argument with one another, which never happens. But as that takes place, my heart has a decision to make. Will I choose Larissa or not? 
will I choose our relationship or not? And I believe that was what Paul is describing here in this moment, is he's letting us know, listen, what the Father's heart is always up to is choosing us. He's never not choosing us. He picks you. He prioritizes you. He's infatuated with you, and he is constantly after you. From before the foundations of the world, he picked you. You're the one that he wants. He chose us, and he's always choosing us. Not only does he choose us, but it gets better. Notice the type of relationship that we get chosen uh, or that, that he chooses for us. It's, it's adoption. The other thing that Paul reflects on is that, that we've been adopted. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Do you continue to see the joy that is described here by Paul? Do you, do you continue to see the, the just sheer amount of delight and fun that he's having here in this passage? He's letting us know God adopted us, and this is what he wanted to do. This is what gives him great pleasure. He's incredibly happy that you are a part of the family. what brings him great joy is that you're here with him. And I hope that it helps, maybe for some of us, our understanding of how God feels about us and how God views us. Because I know that we've done that practice before, is right now, if you were to stop and to close your eyes, and if you were to imagine God's face looking at you, what would the expression of his face be? And if we're honest, I think a lot of times in our lives, we can imagine that the, fresh, that the, that the image or the expression on God's face is one of exacerbation, of frustration, of critique. Sometimes we might imagine that, that, that God's primary disposition to us is that he's looking at us, maybe even just with like a confused look, like, what are you up to? <laughs> this is what he wanted to do. This is what gives him great pleasure that you are his child. His arm is not being pulled. He doesn't need convincing to love and to care for you. And maybe the, the subtle application that might happen for, in this week ahead for us is in how we pray. That maybe what we might do is step into prayer believing that there is this open invitation that we might come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. That we are not trying to find the perfect words to say in order to get God to do what we're wanting him to do. But that prayer all of a sudden would become this place where we are interacting with our Father who loves us and who is for us. Paul goes on that he lavished grace on us. And in verse 6, he says, So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. The, the picture here is that God is comically rich with grace. I heard someone recently reflect on the fact that when they go to Chipotle, they intentionally don't let the employee or the server know that they want two scoops of protein. And, and the reason that they do that is because they wait to see how big of a scoop they, the first scoop is. And once, they say once the employee has shown their hand of how big of a scoop that first scoop is, then they respond by saying, okay, I'll take two scoops. I want double the protein. 
<laughs> because we, how many of us in that space have known that maybe it's just me, you walk in and you are absolutely watching and you say, I'd like two scoops, that they give half a scoop, the first scoop, and then half a scoop, the second scoop. And you walk away really frustrated going, why are you being so stingy with stuff that isn't your own? Maybe the minor inconveniences that I live with. But listen, no, the, the description here is that God is the employee in the kitchen of Chick-fil-A laughing every time someone orders an eight-piece nugget because he knows that he's going to intentionally give ten pieces in there. Right? Like, that's his posture, is that he is just so rich with grace that he lavishes it on us. Do you need some grace? Here's a whole bucket full, right? Like that's the imagery that we're meant to have in our minds, that he pours out grace upon us. He lavishes us with grace. He holds nothing back. He's rich in grace. He graces us. He pours out rain on the just and the unjust alike. He redeems and re restores us. He brings us into family. He, he, he sustains our every day. He's, he intentionally crafts the avocado and the mango so that it just surprises us with flavor, right? Like every day is marked by his grace, his constant giving. He prompts a friend in the middle of their day with your name so that they might pray for you. He, he sends his church into the world, and, and he, he, he places you within the workplace so that you might be a source of encouragement and blessing to the people around you. He causes his church to have passions for, for nations that they have never known or have never stepped foot in. He, he causes us to live with generosity and kindness. He, he causes his church to start up nonprofits in the world that might just solve the, the, the issues that, are, that exist in the neighborhoods around them. He, he, he blesses. He gives. He's generous. That's, that's his disposition. That's what he's longing to pour out into the world, that he is every day sustaining life. Paul in another place in, in, in Scripture will stay. It is, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. Why? Why do we exist here in these very seats and not just see our molecules just completely fly apart from one another? Because he graces us. He sustains us. He heals and restores us. He gives us the very air that we breathe. He lavishes grace upon us. It goes further. He, we're told that moving on now to the movement of, of the Son, it's in Him we have redemption and forgiveness. In verse 7, Paul says, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave us our sin. There is so much rich imagery, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, over the idea of, of redemption and forgiveness. There's so many stories that highlight just how, how incredible these words and these concepts are. Think for a moment of, of Naomi and Ruth sitting together completely distraught because they've just lost everything. Naomi's husband has died. Ruth's husband uh, has died. A uh, brother-in-law has died, and they're heading back from Moab in into to uh, to Israel, and they they've got nothing, and they're living completely vulnerable. And when they step into this land that used to be their home, suddenly there's a man named Boaz who is becomes completely just in infatuated with Ruth and goes out of his way to provide for her, to bless her, to give to her. And as the story unfolds, you, you hear this statement from Naomi as her heart leaps and says, Boaz, he's one of our kinsmen redeemers. 
And the statement there is, is that it'll be through him that there will be provision. There'll be restoration. There'll be blessing. And the story, ends, the story starts with Naomi losing everything, and the story ends with her holding a grandchild. And, and, and it's that kind of rich imagery that, that Paul is drawing upon when he says that, listen, in him we have redemption. Is that life have, may have devastated us, Life may have ravaged us. And we were participants in, in, in the evil and darkness of this world, but, but in him we have redemption. And, and, and what's meant to catch our attention in that place isn't just that, isn't that merely that God forgave us and just said, okay, be on your way, but it's the imagery of saying, now I'm going to restore to you all that was taken from you, and I'm going to give you even more. Listen to this from, from, um, from Eugene Peterson. Says, God does not deal with sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ or mice in the attic. God does not deal with sin by amputation as if it were a gangrenous leg, leaving us crippled, holiness on a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving us, and when he forgives us, there is more of us, not less. That's the imagery of redemption and forgiveness. That God doesn't merely just forgive us for what we've participated in, but now he's going to live us, leave us fully alive to his presence. Next thing is, is this, is that in him he's, he's made known to us his plans. Verses 8 through 10, it says this. It says, he's showered his kindness on us. Along with all wisdom and understanding, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Like we talked about in the spring, that the verses 3 through 14 is one, one, one run-on sentence, and it's intentionally built by Paul to have an apex to it. And so here, this, this sentence, 8 through 10, is the climactic moment of this run-on sentence. At the center of this sentence, it's intentionally crafted to have Jesus at the center. It's intentionally crafted so that we would see that at the center of all things is Jesus. And what, what he's doing here, what Paul is doing here, is letting us know, listen, Listen, God doesn't hide things from you. He hides things for you. And what I mean by that is that God's not out to, to keep his will hidden from us and that we go about life blindly trying to grasp and figure out what his plan is. But what God is doing is saying, come and discover what is hidden in me that I want to make it known to you. I want to share with you my plans and my purposes for the world. I, I want to just share everything about me with you. And so what Paul does here by, by crafting this census is by letting us know, listen, everything that there was this giant mystery to the universe and it has been revealed to us. We've, we've got the insight with his, with his great wisdom and understanding, God is giving us great wisdom and understanding, and he's saying, here it is. Here's my plan for everything. Jesus. Everything will find its fulfillment in him. Everything will find its hope and its restoration and its reconciliation in him. Everything will be unified in him. 
He is the climactic moment of human history. Everything makes sense in him. Listen to this from from Peter Thomas O'Brien. Christ is the one whom God chooses to sum up the cosmos, the one in whom he restores harmony to the universe. The stress is placed on the one in whom God's overarching purposes for the whole created order are included, a universe that is censored and reunited in Christ. The mystery which God has graciously made known refers to the summing up and bringing together of the fragmented and alien elements all things in Christ as the focal point. Everything is being unified. Everything is being brought to order in Jesus. But here's where it makes sense in your life. You get to be a first-hand witness and participant in this. Everything is being redeemed and restored in Jesus. And, and it, isn't, it isn't just simply like, here's an answer to the test. I want you to know this information. But what Paul is saying here by saying he's made known to us the mystery of this will, he's saying to us, listen, you get to be intimately involved in this. That's what it is to know this. It, it's that this is what's going to overtake your life. This is what your heartbeat's going to be all about. God has made known to you what he's up to in the world. So where things are fragmented, where things are broken, where things are painful, where things are out of whack, God is seeking to redeem and restore and bring unity to all things. But he's made that plan known to you. It's it's through y'all that he's going to accomplish this. He's given y'all the blueprint. Here's, Here's the game plan. Here's the blueprint. Here's the agenda. I'm revealing it to you because I'm entrusting this plan to you. You get to participate in the mystery of Jesus bringing all things together in him. It goes further, it says um, that, that he's given us, now it's to movement three, that he's He's given us hope for a future inheritance. It says, furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. And all this, what's happening here is Paul's letting us know that the Holy Spirit has been given to us and he's actively teaching the church what lies ahead. What lies ahead will be a day when God makes all things right, where everything is brought to unity and peace. But notice, notice the, the, He's given our hearts hope for that. So that way when we see things that are broken in the world around us, the Holy Spirit is teaching us hope. Have hope, have hope, have hope, because I'm moving things towards a direction where there will be healing, where there will be be restoration, there there will be joy. Heaven and earth will be fully merged together, but this is what this is how he does it. This is how the Holy Spirit is actively giving us hope. By community. You notice what he says. He promised that he purchased to be his own people. This is where we learn. Community is where we learn about the future day of peace. It's the way that we interact with one another. It's the way that we're present to each other. It's the way that we enjoy each other's presence. It's the way that we laugh together. It's the way that we sit around tables and eat together. It's, it's, it's through these healed and restored relationships that there is hope planted in our hearts that God will move all things to reconciliation. 
Because if we can sit around tables with people that don't look like us and actually learn to love one another through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, then our hearts will have hope that there can be reconciliation. Essentially, it's the way to say this. I'm not trying to pick on Danny. I'm just saying this because he's a good friend. It'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Danny and I are friends. Then God can do anything. That's, that, there, there's a hope that's planted in our hearts as we learn to enjoy each other's presence that, that causes us to go, yes, I believe that God can do all things. And, and, and why is Paul seeing it that way is because you'll see that there's a pivotal point here around verse 13 where, and I don't have it up on the screen, but it says, we Jews were the first to hope and now you Gentiles are brought in. And it's these two people groups that historically had, there were enemies, had animosity between each other. And he's saying, here's the future hope that we have. The Holy Spirit's been given to us and Jews and Gentiles now are the church together. And that testifies to our hearts. God can do all things. And if Jew and Gentile are sitting at the table together, and slave and master are sitting at the table together, and, and there is an elevation of the poor in that room, and there is a lowering of the rich in that room. And what I mean by that is now they're sharing all things in common with, enough, with each other to provide and encourage and be there for one another. It is, this, it is this statement to them that the lowly God can lift up. And, and, and the places of, of oppression and greed that might exist in the world, God can deal with it. And the hostility that exists among the nations if we're around the table together, then I do have hope that there will be a day where heaven and earth will be merged together, where the lion and the lamb can, can be together in the pastures with one another. Why do I believe that? Because I see it here. Why do I believe that there will be a day when God wipes every single tear? Why do I believe that? Because you've wiped my tears. Why do I believe that there will be a day when, 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 when the broken are made whole? Why do I believe that? Because the community that God has given to me has sat with me in places of deep struggle and darkness. Why, why do I believe that there will be healing? is because you visited me in the hospital. Right? That's the hope that is being planted in our hearts. And let's wrap. Um, actually, I want to keep on going just for a minute because we don't have to quickly get to the youth. They've just joined us. Later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul will tell us, listen, this is, this is the therefore. Now that you're in Christ, what I want you to do is I want you to take off lies and I want you to take off anger. Like these are the things that we've been wearing. I want you to take off theft and I want you to take off gossip and I want to take off revenge and promiscuity and drunkenness. You used to be clothed in those things. Don't be clothed in them anymore. But now what I want you to do is I want you to put on truth and peace and generosity and encouragement and forgiveness and self-control, and ultimately you will be clothed in God's Spirit. And, and so what the church is meant to be is to be this place amidst, amidst a world where people experience lies, anger, theft, gossip, revenge, promiscuity, and drunkenness. The people of God become this testimony, this foretaste, this witness to the world that here, here what people will experience is truth, is peace, is generosity, is encouragement, is forgiveness, is self-control, is the Holy Spirit. And the church, right, is, is meant to read this from Paul's letter and say, yes, Lord, let it be. Let that be the work that you do amongst us. Let that be what you establish here. 
Let your will be done here on this patch of soil as it is in heaven. And obviously we look at that and say, there's no way on our own we can accomplish that. And so that's why Paul tells us here, and when you believed in Christ, he identified you as own by giving you the Holy Spirit. You are not left on your own to figure this out. On our own, we cannot offer to each other generosity and encouragement and peace and forgiveness. On our own, we're unable to offer that with each other, but, but God says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I will actively be with you, empowering you, gracing you, strengthening you, so that you might be this community that brings him praise and glory. That, that we might be the community where, where these fruits and these gifts are lived out. And so after this really long run-on sentence, Paul can't help but pray. I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know it, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you might perceive what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to, his, according to the working of his great power after this really deep, rich, run-on sentence, Paul can't help but stop and say, just like, let me just pray. Let me just pray that this would get, would get instilled in your heart. It's as if Paul is, is praying here in this moment and like telling the church, man, I wish I could preach it how I feel it. I wish I could get across what I am experiencing in Jesus, but I, I can't do that. So what I'm just going to do right now is just pray. I pray that God would reveal it to you. I pray that he would give you wisdom. I pray that he would give you knowledge. I pray that he would give you insight. I pray that your heart would be enlightened. I pray that you would be able to perceive Paul is like that waiter standing before us trying to describe a really rich glass of wine and telling us, like, there are so many notes here. There are so many flavors that are at play. I just want you to sit and taste. Not quickly. Sit, meditate, reflect, slow down, make space, spend time with him. I pray that you would be able to taste the richness of God. and that it would radically change your life. I pray that you would be able to enjoy him. I pray that you would learn what it is to just sit with him and know his presence. I pray that in the middle of your Wednesday afternoon that there would be a moment where you just stop and are still in the presence of God and your heart is overtaken by joy and delight. Slow down and taste. Slow down and taste. I know in my own life I am guilty of just grabbing my iced tea and just guzzling. But man, there's so much flavor that I'm missing by doing that. Slow down and turn to a place of gratitude place of praise this week to enjoy the presence of God.
Be overwhelmed by him. Learn to enjoy him. But it will be a discipline to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, you're greater than we realize. And Lord, forgive us for this past week where we have lived so frantically. I don't know for me, it's my own point of confession of just saying I've, I've lived at such a pace that I was unable to just stop and to delight in your presence, to grow more and more aware of your Spirit's presence with me. Father, let me learn to enjoy you. Let my heart be shaped by these postures of praise. Lord, may we be a community that is able to grasp, able to, per to perceive what is made available to us. The one that raised Jesus from the dead is saying, here I am longing to live with you. So, Lord, this week, teach us what it is to turn our hearts, our attention, our affections towards you. And so we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.